Let's ask the Lord again to bless his servant as he comes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege. Thank you for loaning us, men like David Miller. Lord, we know that these are your gifts to the church. and We pray that we would prize them and pray for them. That is our duty, Lord, to receive the word that you have given them to us. His duty is to tell us what you have said, and ours is to take it by the grace of God, to work it out and obey you and to claim the promise or to conform to the, the, the doctrine that you're teaching us. And so we pray you'd bless him. Uh, we pray you'd keep him safe and, and, and strengthen him during these days. And we just praise you and ask for great things in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, folks. Does it appear to you that I'm right in the middle of the platform? That's very important to me. I'd be grieved above measure if this congregation were to perceive me to be to the left of center. If I can't be to the right of center, I want to be right in the middle. Okay. It's good to see you today. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. I want to talk to you today about the God of all comfort. Are you interested in the God of all comfort? Some of you may have come in the room today thinking that the sun won't ever shine again. But I've got good news for you. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. He's still on the throne, and he's still open for business. And he's the God of all comfort. Have you found the text? Let's begin at verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we might be able to comfort them that are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the afflictions of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you to be ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, 
but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And ye also, helping together by prayer for us, that the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. I want to begin my sermon this morning by asking three questions. One, why do the righteous suffer? Two, if God loves me, why has he allowed this to happen? Three, if God is in control, for heaven's sake, why doesn't he do something? The child of God, who has never been forced by their circumstances to wrestle with these tough questions, is a rare and fortunate individual. The truth is, troubles and tribulations do not respect persons. In fact, some of the greatest Christians throughout history have been the most beset by troubles and tribulations. For example, Dr. John Henry Jowett, who in the opinion of his peers was the greatest preacher of the English-speaking world of his day, once said this, You seem to think that I have no ups and downs, just a lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity. By no means. I am often most wretched, and everything appears most murky. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul, once said this, I am often the object of depressions of spirit, so great, I pray that none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Has it happened to you yet? If it hasn't, my advice is just be patient and get ready. Now, with that introduction behind us, I want to help you to see three things from this passage one, I want you to see the reality of suffering in Paul's life. Two, I want you to see the reasons for the suffering. And three, I want you to see the remedy for those who suffer. Now, some of you might prefer that I just skip the first two sections and get to the remedy. But if you can be patient for a little while we will arrive at that place. Now, under our first heading, the reality of suffering in Paul's life, I want to help you to see three things. First, I want you to see the abundance 
of the sufferings. Listen to it. For as the afflictions of Christ abound in us. Now, regardless of the nature of Paul's sufferings, this much we know. They were not few. They were not far between. They were many and they were manifold. We're not talking about a one-time isolated incident. We're talking about a life characterized and marked by troubles and tribulations, the abundance of them. Number two, I want you to see the account that he gives of these sufferings. In verse 8, he says, I want you to have a clear understanding of the troubles that came to us in Asia, in particular, in Ephesus. And he gives the following account. Look at it. He says, first, we were pressed out of measure. Now, this statement, pressed out of measure, has in mind a beast of burden that is so heavily laden, it literally cannot walk straight. And so it staggers and it sways. Did any of you ever attend a donkey ball game? When I was in high school, our high school uh, conducted a donkey ball game. They contracted with this company, and the company brought in a, a truckload of donkeys. They had rubber shoes so that they wouldn't scar the gymnasium floor. And you could buy a ticket, and you could ride the donkey, and you'd choose up teams and play a basketball game while riding on the donkey. Did any of you ever attend one of those? Nod your head up and down like this. I can't tell just by looking at you. Or one or two of you. Well, you lived a sheltered life, obviously. <laughs> now, the night of the ball game, some of the baser sort of fellows... Obviously, I was not among them. They enticed the largest man in the county to ride one of the donkeys. They paid his fare, and it was hilarious. The man weighed more than the donkey, and when he mounted up, the poor animal tried to move, but he could only make short, choppy steps. And he couldn't walk straight, so he swayed and he staggered. He is pressed out of measure. And then Paul says, it was above strength. And this statement pictures that same beast of burden, now so heavily laden. Not only does he sway and stagger, but he stumbles. And he's struggling to get up again. The summer, when I was seven years old, my mom worked at a factory in our county. 
And I would spend the day at my Aunt Virgie and Uncle Barry Sims' home. And Uncle Barry was having some timber removed from his farm. And when the loggers would get the truck loaded, they'd bring the truck up out of the creek bottom, up a red clay hill by the barn. At the top of that hill, there was an iron gate. And the driver would have to stop, get out, and open the gate, get back in, drive through, get back out, close the gate, and proceed. One morning, I happened to be in the vicinity when they brought the truck out of the creek bottom. And I ran over and I opened the gate. And the driver was so delighted that he didn't have to go through the rigors of opening and closing the gate. He flipped me out a dime. Now, being a seven-year-old with great economic acumen and possessing an entrepreneurial spirit, I quickly did the demographics and discovered that it was maximum optimum time to begin a gate-opening service. And every time thereafter, when I'd hear them coming up out of the creek bottom, well, I'd run out and open the gate, and I'd be standing there looking up expectantly. And the driver would flip me out either a coin or perhaps a piece of gum, And I had a thriving business going. I remember one morning there came a summer shower. Now, if you know anything about red clay hills, you know it doesn't take very much rain for them to become extremely slick and impassable. And the truck started up the hill, but it didn't get very far. And the wheels began to spin, and it ceased its forward motion. And the driver got out and went back down to the creek bottom. And in a little while, he came back with some other men and a team of huge logging mules. I stood over to one side out of the way and watched as they positioned those mules in front of the truck. They attached the traces, the chains. They spoke to those animals And those huge mules slowly began to lean their weight and their strength into the harness. And they tightened the chains. And they began to pull against that great load. And as they pulled, they stretched themselves. And as they stretched themselves, they got lower and lower to the ground. But it was more than they could bear. It was above their strength. And finally, they began to struggle and they literally fell to their knees and were struggling to get up again. Now this is the picture that the apostle paints regarding the troubles that came to him in Ephesus. He says, it was above strength. It was more than we could bear, but he's not done yet. He says, insomuch 
that we despaired even of life. Uh, Here is the picture of a man with his back against the wall. He looks to the right and he looks to the left. And he considers all of his options. And he comes to this conclusion. There's no way out. Literally, Paul thought he was going to die. He said, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. Dr. B.H. Carroll says that when we link this statement with his statement that he uh, wrestled with wild beasts in Ephesus, it becomes clear that Paul had been sentenced to die and the sentence had been officially carried out as he was thrown into the lion's den to be torn asunder by them. But did you notice what Paul said? He said, but God delivered us from so great a death. He does deliver, and we trust that he will yet deliver us. This is the account that is given. Put that aside now, and I want you to see the activity of God in these sufferings. As far as I can tell, and to be candid with you, the older that I get, the more of my statements do I preface with that remark. As far as I can tell, there's only three ways to look at the trouble that comes to us. One, We can look at our troubles and say, it's just a matter of fate, and there's nothing I can do. And if that's your approach, you might as well give up. There's nothing you can do. Secondly, you can look at your troubles and you can say, I am in charge, and I am going to do something. And if that's your approach, you might as well give up. There's nothing you can do. Many of us have already tried that and have seen that it doesn't work. The only other option that I'm aware of is to recognize and confess that there is a God in heaven who rules over the affairs of men on earth. And once we do this, we can quit worrying and wrestling with things we have no control of and start resting and relaxing in the providential care of him who loves us and who doeth all things well. Now, having said this, let me tell you that when troubles come your way, God uh, does three things. One, he permits. It. Two, he presides over it. And three, he prevails over it. Do you remember when the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan came also among them? And God said to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job, a perfect and an upright man? And Satan said, yes, I've noticed, but I've also noticed that you have provided for him and you have protected him. 
Let me take away his substance, and he will curse you to your face. Do you remember this story? And so the devil took away Job's substance. And then there was a second meeting. And the Lord, with some sense of humor, said, Have you noticed my servant Job? And Satan said, Yes, I've noticed. But you have restricted my access. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Beloved, the only reason you and I exist today is because of the providential government of him who sits on the throne. The only reason the devil hadn't destroyed you already is because God has limited his access. And the devil said, let me add his physical body and he will curse you to your face. Well, you remember the story. God said, all right, I'm going to preside over this a little further. But you remember God prevailed over those troubles. And the latter end of Job was greater than his beginning. Now, let me elaborate on this further. I want to tell you that God will often do one of three things. One He might use ordinary means to bring about deliverance or to bring about healing. Perhaps God will use medical science. Perhaps God will cause the Dow Jones Industrials or the Standard & Poor's or the NASDAQ to tick up a few points because he wants his children to enjoy a windfall. Perhaps he's got something he wants done down at the church. So he'll use ordinary means. Did you know God can do that? Number two, sometimes God may use extraordinary means, miraculous, supernatural means to bring deliverance. Now, I probably ought to caution the church this morning by telling you there are two extreme views regarding the miraculous in our day. There are those who believe that when the last apostle died, that was the end of all miracles. Well, I am reluctant to join up with that crowd. I am reluctant to embrace that doctrine. There are things that have occurred in my own experience that I cannot explain except for the miraculous activity of the Spirit of God. Uh, But there's another extreme. There are those who say, Have you had your miracle? today, and if you cannot verify a bona fide, miraculous, supernatural experience in the last 24 hours, then you listen to them for a while, 
and you'll be feeling like a second-class, subordinary child of God. Do you know what I'm getting at here? I got in on one of these meetings. It was in the Atlanta area. I preached at the conference. Uh, Folks were there from all over the world, actually. And then another brother preached. And at the end of his sermon, the man in charge came to the podium and called my name and the name of six or eight other men and asked us to come down to the altar. Well, I assumed that we were going to have an old-fashioned altar call, that we were going to give an invitation. And I came, and in a while, a lady came to me. She told me about a burden that she had, and I prayed with her and sought to encourage her. In a moment, a, a doctor from Venezuela came and told me about a burden that he had, and I prayed with him and sought to encourage him. And now I'm waiting, and I'm hearing a commotion. And I know you're not supposed to do this, but I peeked. And to my amazement, about ten feet over to my right, there lay a lady and two men flat on their backs, cold as a cucumber, out, slain in the spirit. It seems a medical doctor from the area had brought his own catcher with him, and he was performing a slaying in the spirit service during the invitation time. Immediately, I moved back to the front pew. I thought I want to get a bird's eye view of this. I may never be this close to such activity again. I want to see it for myself. And I moved over to the front pew, and in a moment... The man who was doing the slaying in the Spirit took a microphone, stepped up on about the third step, got everybody's attention, and he said this. He said, Today has been my day to visit AIDS patients in the Atlanta hospitals. Well, I thought, that's noble. I admire this man. And then he said, these hands have touched 40 AIDS patients today. I thought that is commendable. I admire this man. And then he said, our God is a God who heals. And I thought to myself, amen. I believe that. I had read in the Psalms where the Lord said, I am the Lord who healeth thee. 
He is Jehovah Rophe. He's our health and our healer and our physician. And then the man said, I believe that God wants to heal some people in this room tonight. And I thought to myself, well, if we're voting on it, I'm in favor of it. You're not going to catch me voting against someone getting healed. And then he said, as he began to roll his shoulder, now there's someone in this room tonight who has bursitis in a shoulder, and God is healing you. Well, I thought to myself, praise the Lord. I'm all about, folks, with bursitis in a shoulder getting healed. Aren't you? And then he said, as he began to rub his belly with his hand, now someone in the room tonight has a tumor in their belly and they're not even aware of it and God is healing them and the congregation erupted into applause and I thought to myself they've got a tumor in their belly and they're not even aware of it. And this dude's healing it. I can heal that one. And if it comes back, I'll just say it's a different tumor. Who's going to know the difference? Now, do you remember where I'm sitting now? Point to where I'm sitting. Right, right over there. In the aisle by the front pew, I'm bobbing and weaving. I'm, I'm trying to get eye contact with this guy. I, I'm the only one in the room in a wheelchair. I mean, come on. <laughs> Give me a break. You over here. I mean, you're in front of hundreds of people and you're conducting a healing service. And all you can come up with is an intangible case of bursitis in a shoulder and a tumor that folks don't even know they have. And I'm sitting here in a wheelchair, and you can't even make eye contact. You must have heard a jackass braying and thought you'd been called to preach. You're as bogus as a $3 bill. Do I seem sarcastic about that? Well, I intend to be. He was as bogus as he could be. What about that, beloved? 
Now look, I don't want to join either one of those two crowds. I don't want to join up with that crowd that just draws a line in the sand and says when the last apostle died, absolutely nothing else miraculous is to take place till Jesus comes back. And I don't want to join that crowd that says, have you had your miracle today? I want to come in somewhere in between those. God sometimes uses ordinary means. God sometimes uses extraordinary means. But listen, sometimes for reasons known only to God, He will use neither ordinary nor extraordinary means. He will allow one of His children to continue on day after day, week after week, month after month, walking through the fire. But that's not to say that God has not permitted it, that he's not presiding over it, and that one day he will prevail over it. Our time frame is much too narrow. We must look beyond this life to the life that is to come. Well, put that aside. Do you all notice how quickly I'm moving through this sermon That is point number one already. All right, here's the second item. I want you to see the means, uh, or or pardon me, the reasons uh, for the suffering. Three of them. Number one, that we might be able to comfort them that are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, what kind of person do you want to come along when you've got your back against the wall and you're pressed out of measure above strength and you think you're going to die, do you want our friend to get down out of his glass tower out on the West Coast and come skipping along, grinning from ear to ear and say, don't worry, be happy. Now, that'll help you, won't it? You got your back against the wall. What kind of person do you want to come by to encourage you? You want somebody to come by that was born with a silver spoon in their mouths? They've never known one day of adversity in their entire lives. You want that person to come by and slap you on the back and say, What's the matter with you? Well, get your chin up for heaven's sake. That'll encourage you, won't it? I'll tell you the kind of person I want. I want some person whose life I've observed. I've seen them walking through the fire, and they haven't even had the smell of smoke on their garments. Their faith has not been daunted. The spirit and the grace of Jesus exudes from their countenance. I want someone like this to come and sit down by me and say, David, I really don't know what to say. And I know that I cannot understand the depths of your sorrow today. I guess I'll just remind you of this. It is no secret what God can do. What He's done for others 
he'll do for you. And we may not know how, and we may not know when, but he'll do it again. That's the reason God may let you suffer. Don't look on your suffering as punishment. It might be preparation. God may be getting you ready for a higher level of ministry in the kingdom. Number two, that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raiseth the dead. The truth is, some of us would never look up if we were not lying flat on our backs. God wants us to live by faith. We shall be justified by faith, but we must live by faith. And if we won't look to the Lord and trust in the Lord, in the sunshine, He might bring the rain. And number three, He wants us to learn how to intercede on behalf of others. Verse 11 says, And you... Corinthians also helping together by prayer for us that the gift bestowed upon us, that is, the gift of deliverance from the lion, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. If you want to get in on the thanksgiving, if you want to get in on the rejoicing, you've got to get in on the burden bearer. You've got to learn how to intercede on behalf of others. Now, are you ready for the remedy? Are you? Are you sure? Here it is now. Bring yourself up to your best height and square your shoulders and your chin. Here's the remedy. Blessed be God. That's it. That's the remedy for those who suffer. Learn to bless God. Now, don't leave out of here saying that the little preacher in the wheelchair from Arkansas came over here and told us that we ought to be thanking God for every bad thing that happens to us. I didn't say that. What I'm telling you is this. When you can't bless God because of the trouble, you can bless God because He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can begin to think about who Jesus is. And you can begin to think about His atoning work on your behalf. He propitiated God's holy justice. He satisfied God's justice, which was against you, and turned away the wrath of God from your soul. You can think about expiation, how he took our sins on himself and bore them into the regions of the unknown. And you can begin to say, I bless God because Jesus has borne my sins and taking them out of view. My sins are gone. Hallelujah. I tell you, beloved, you get to blessing God because He's the Father of the Lord Jesus. Ere long, you will forget about your troubles. And He's the Father of mercies. 
You think your troubles are bad? What if you didn't know the Lord Jesus? What if you had never tasted of the mercies of the Lord? You haven't gotten what you deserve. Listen to me now. I don't mean to be unkind to you. Look, anything short of hell is the mercy of God. And then the text says he's the God of all comfort. He is the parakletos, the one called alongside to help, to give you strength when you're weak, to lift you up when you fall, to give you faith when you doubt, to give you courage when you fear. Hallelujah. You're not on your own. Behold, I am with you always. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Blessed be God. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this passage of Scripture. Lord, your word means so much. Would you write it upon our hearts and before our eyes? And Lord, may it help your people. May it encourage the hearts of the saints. For Jesus' sake, amen.